Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, our our hearts are filled uh, with many troubles and worries. Uh, We pray that you'll calm our hearts, uh, that you'll teach us contentment, uh, whatever our situations are. Uh, And we pray that we might know and cherish uh, Jesus with us and the righteousness that he gives us before you. Amen. How much money do you need to be happy? In lots of ways, it's a very first world, middle class question. Most people in the world are happy if they have food to eat that day, water to drink, a a safe place to sleep at night. So to ask how much money you need to be happy would seem like a very strange question to them. And yet, people are researching the answer to exactly that question. How much money do you need to be happy? Uh, In 2018, researchers from Purdue University and the University of Virginia analysed a world Gallup poll on income and life satisfaction. Uh, Not a small survey. 1.7 million people completed it across 164 countries. And here's what they found. For what it's worth, they concluded after analysing all the statistics, uh, on average, you need sixty to $75,000 per year for emotional well-being, whatever that is. Uh, and interestingly, they also found that if you had m- more than that income, uh, a person's happiness stayed roughly the same or even reduces. Uh, Sonia Lubomirsky, a, a professor of psychology at the University of California, has an explanation for that, uh, for why wealthy people can actually be less happy. She identifies something that she calls hedonic adaptation. She says, over time, as we earn more money, we get used to that change in our life and our expectations change and our, as our lifestyle changes, we adapt. Every time we experience a rise in income, our aspirations and expectations rise a little bit. Now all of that seems like a whole lot of effort and a complicated way of saying something that for most of us is just common sense. Uh, Most people think that however much they have, if only they had a little bit more, they'd be happy. Most people, most of the time, are not content with what they have. Now, of course, it's not just about money, is it? Uh, We think if only we could have a new car, we'd be happy. Or a new house. Or a different job. Or an overseas holiday. If only our kids were better behaved. If only I could lose five kilos. Or I could play golf like my brother or play guitar like my best friend, then I'd be happy. Now, social media has been found to make that feeling worse. Uh, In 2013, the University of Michigan uh, released a study that found this. The more time a person spends on Facebook, the more their feelings of well-being decrease and feelings of discouragement increase. Social media is supposed to make you feel better, but instead the evidence suggests it actually feeds our discontentment. Uh, 
because people are sharing the highlights of their lives and their friends feel like they're missing out and that they can't measure up. What a sad reflection on our society this all is. We're healthier than we've ever been. We've got more free time, better nutrition. Our lives are filled with more labour-saving devices. But rates of suicide, mental illness, the numbers of prescriptions for depression and anxiety medication, all of these things are growing every year across the Western world. Uh, Tim Keller writes, In so many ways, human life has been transformed And yet, though we are unimaginably wealthier and more comfortable than our ancestors, no one is is arguing that we are significantly happier than we were. So what about you? Are you generally happy? Are you content with life? You may, you may not be. But here's the important question. What is it that makes you happy? Or more specifically, what is it that if you lost it, it would seriously affect your enjoyment of life? Your job, your family, your health, your money. That's where it really gets relevant, I think. When you lose that basis for your happiness. We may be happy with life, we may be happy with where we are and and what we've got, But most of the time, the reality is those things are fairly uncertain and temporary and it won't take very much for us to lose it. We need a better basis for our happiness. We need a better basis. So here's my assertion. Uh, The secret to being happy is not to get more stuff but to learn to be content with what you've got. The secret to being happy is not to get more stuff, but to learn to be content with what you've got. And Christianity works because it enables you to be content despite your circumstances. Now, interestingly, Buddhism agrees with much of this. Uh, Buddhism agrees that more things won't make you happy. Buddhism agrees that the key to contentment is found somewhere else. But as I understand it, Buddhism teaches that the key uh, to contentment is to want things less. The key is to distance yourself from things and relationships and experiences, to move away from good things and instead to look inward, to become a self-sufficient island, to find the strength to be happy within yourself. But while Christianity agrees that more stuff won't make you happy, It teaches that contentment is found in a very different way. Uh, The answer is not found inside yourself. Contentment comes by loving the most lovely thing first, which is God. Contentment comes from loving the most lovely thing first, which is God. Find your delight, find your enjoyment in God first and then everything else will fall into line. And we can be content whatever our circumstances. In fact, we can actually enjoy lovely things more when we put God in his rightful place. Our case study is the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, He wrote to the Philippian church from prison. Uh, He was in the original lockdown. (laughs) And yet he writes all through the letter about how he's joyful. So obviously his happiness didn't depend on his personal safety or his personal comfort. But in chapter 4 we get an insight into the source of his contentment. Uh, He turns to the topic of the Philippian church's financial gifts to him. He says there in verse 10, uh, look at, follow along with me. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Uh, He's thinking about their gifts. Uh, It's one more thing that he's joyful about, that the Philippian church has shown its love for Paul by sending money to support him. But then straight away he wants to clarify what he said, just in case they think he's happy about the money. Uh, Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He's discovered that contentment doesn't need to depend on uh, his situation. Now, he wasn't always that way. Uh, He says he's learned how to be satisfied with what he's got. Because that's the truth, isn't it? Contentment doesn't come naturally. You have to work at it. The things that come naturally instead are envy and discontentment. Those things rise easily within us. And by learning it, we learn that we don't just have to learn contentment once and then it becomes easy. The reality is contentment is something you have to fight for every day. Contentment has to be fought for. He continues, verse 12, describing his various circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He's experienced it all over the years. As he travelled across the known world as a missionary, he's known plenty. He's, He's had nothing. He's had a full stomach, he's had an empty one. And he's learned the secret of being satisfied whatever situation he's in. So that explains how he's even able to rejoice while he's in prison. What a wonderful freedom he's discovered. To be happy in life, even without close friends. To be happy in life, even if the roof is leaking, if the fridge is empty if your joints are aching. That sort of freedom, it frees you from being needy, from being dependent on others, on things, on circumstances. It frees you from being disappointed with what life brings you. It frees you from being envious of others. To be truly independent like that, it's a remarkable thing. In lots of ways, it makes Paul freer than most people, even though he's chained in prison. The secret of being content, whatever the situation. But what's the secret? How can we learn what Paul learned? Notice first of all, verse 13. This is not from Paul's own insight or strength or character. He gives credit where it's due. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now maybe you've heard that verse quoted before, but 
but I'm guessing it's been quoted out of context. Most people think it's about how Christ will help you achieve some personal goal, Uh, will help you win a grand final or, or climb a mountain or build a business. But notice Paul's talking about the strength to be content. It's Christ who gives him the strength to be satisfied when he's lost everything. It's Christ who enables him to be joyful even though he's in prison. So how does that work? What did Paul learn? And how can I learn that too? Well, we need to jump back to chapter 3. In verse 4 of chapter 3, Paul lists all the things he used to find fulfilment in, happiness in. He lists all the parts of his life that satisfied him and gave him self-esteem. Follow along with me, chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. These were the personal qualities, the achievements he valued most highly. They were the things that would dramatically affect his happiness if he lost them. Family reputation, academic religious achievements, personal qualities. That was before though, something has completely changed Paul's attitude to those things. Look at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, when Paul met Jesus, when Paul was joined to Jesus by faith, when Jesus made Paul righteous before God, completely clean and forgiven, everything changed for Paul. He'd worked hard all his life to be acceptable to God. But he'd failed again and again until God delivered his verdict, innocent, free, because of Jesus. That was the most valuable treasure Paul had ever known and would ever know. And because it depends on Jesus' righteousness rather than Paul's righteousness, It's a treasure he can't lose. It's secure, whatever he does or has or doesn't have. And so his life's goal is to know more and more of those riches, to know Christ, to be known by Christ. He wants a greater and greater experience of the one who'd given him everything. That's the secret of Paul's contentment despite his circumstances. That's why it's Christ strengthening him. That means he can do all things, including being content.
You see, when you have the most valuable thing, which is Christ and righteousness before God, you're content. It doesn't matter what other things you have or don't have. Buddhism says the secret to contentment is to love things less. But Christianity says the secret to contentment is to love the greatest thing most. The more you can do that, the more you can be truly joyful. The more you can be genuinely content, whatever else happens. You have the most lovely thing, so it doesn't matter whether you have other things. Imagine you lost your watch. You'd be upset. It cost you a lot of money. But imagine instead that you had a limitless credit card in your wallet and you never had to repay it. That'd change everything, wouldn't it? Imagine you now lost your watch. That would seem far less important, wouldn't it? Because you had something of far greater worth. And that's what it's like when you have Jesus. When you know you've been accepted and forgiven by God, when you know your eternity is secure, your happiness is far less tied to what you have or do or are or love. This idea of the connection between loving the most lovely thing and our happiness, it's something that a guy called St. Augustine highlighted. Uh, Augustine of Hippo. Uh, he was way back in the 4th century. He was a, a theologian and bishop in North Africa. Uh, he wrote that the, the unhappiness, the disorder in our lives, is because we love less important things more and we love more important things less than we should. He talked about how our loves are disordered. Our loves are the wrong, uh, wrong way around. Uh, for example, when you love food more than your health... You suffer. Your health suffers. When you love your work more than you love your family, both you and your family suffer. And supremely, uh, Augustine says that we are most discontent when we fail to love the first thing first, when we fail to love God first. And that's because of the way God made us. Uh, Augustine famously prayed to God and said, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, we were made to love the loveliest thing, the loveliest object, God. That's what we were made for. We work best when God is in his right place in our life. It's like putting water in the petrol tank of a car. It won't work because a car was made to run on a different fuel. Created things will never satisfy us because we were made for a joy and a satisfaction that they can't produce in us. Listen to Augustine again. What is more beautiful than he, than God? If you seek for anything better, you will do wrong to him and harm to yourself by preferring to him that which he made when he would willingly give himself to you. When we love earthly things more than God, we insult God and we actually harm those earthly things and we harm ourselves. 
and we end up dissatisfied and unhappy. How does that work? Well, for example, if you love your family more than you love God, that will mean you depend on your family for your happiness and your security and your significance. You actually need them to succeed or or to stay safe or to continue loving you. And the problem is a family can't do that. Uh, No one can measure up to that expectation all the time, forever. That sort of expectation, well, it'll crush them. It'll drive them away. At some point, family will disappoint you. And you will lose them. And their loss will be intolerable. Because they are the most valuable thing in your life. It's the same thing whether you love your work the most, or or pleasure, or money, or achievements. When you love those things more than God, eventually they will disappoint you. They can't give what you demand of them. None of them are secure enough. And so you'll be disappointed and you'll be crushed. So what's the alternative? What does life look like when you love God first? Well, firstly, in a negative sense. If you love the most lovely and the most secure thing first, if you love God, then when you lose those other things, your contentment's not affected, like Paul. When your loved ones die, or your friends stop liking you, or when you lose your wealth or your health or your career, you won't be consumed by grief. Because your greatest source of consolation and joy and value is still there and doesn't change and won't leave. Secondly, here's what it looks like in a positive sense. When we love God first, we can actually enjoy those other things more. Miroslav Volf, a theologian from Yale University, wrote, Attachment to God amplifies and deepens enjoyment of the world. Christians enjoy the world more. How does that work, you might ask? You see, as we learn to love God most, we actually free the other things of life from the burden of being our source of happiness. We don't cling to them as if life depended on them. And work can be enjoyed for what it is, a great way to be useful to other people. And money becomes just money, a great way to support your family and buy the things that you enjoy. When we recognise everything in this world as a free gift from the loving hand of a generous father, we can enjoy them even more because we're enjoying them with thankfulness to God. A, A sunset, a bushwalk, a birthday party, a glass of wine, a promotion, they all become more lovely when we give thanks to our generous Father for them as his good gifts. The secret to being content, whatever your circumstance, is not to value things less, but learn to value the greatest thing most. As Paul said in Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, teach us the secret of being content. Uh, But before that, Lord, we pray that you will teach us to value Jesus above everything else. Teach us what it means to know him, to be known by him. Teach us what it means to be declared righteous in your sight, that we might value it and so value the rest of this world less and so be content. Amen.